On today's episode of Adventure Rider Radio, we're going to talk with Daniel Rince, a filmmaker and motorcycle traveler. Daniel has just returned from three years on the road and is getting ready to make his second major film. We're going to talk about travel, Africa, and making money on the road. Making money on the road is a subject Daniel knows well because when he set out on his first adventure back in 2008, he left with a rough plan and zero money. He intended to make money on the road when he needed it. And also, speaking of Africa, traveling to Africa can be daunting, but there's a fellow from the UK that now calls Africa his home and he's helping riders get their bikes into and out of Africa and guess what he's even got a place you can stay I'm Jim Martin this is Adventure Rider Radio stay with us we got a good one for you Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lambert. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. In 2008, Daniel Rince and a buddy got on their motorcycles and left for an adventure around the world. Now, what's kind of interesting about this, I say kind of tongue-in-cheek, is the fact that they left with no money. I mean, it's got to be like the, the number one thing everyone thinks about when they head off an adventure. Although you probably expect me to tell you that two months later, he ended up returning home and he lives in his parents' basement now. That's not the case. He stayed on the road till 2011. When he came back, he produces a movie from his film footage, Daniel's a filmmaker, 
The movie is called Somewhere Else Tomorrow, and it's been shown around the world at different film festivals and in some TV stations as well. It's done very well. So 2014, Daniel hits the road again, this time with a different partner, and he stays on the road till 2017. He does the length of the Americas and Africa as well, up the West Coast. And today we're going to talk about his travels in Africa. We're going to talk about filming on the road and what it's like. It's interesting because often we see these rushes on YouTube or maybe in a film of some altercation or something has happened at a border or something and you don't really think much of the actual filming of it. We're going to talk a little bit about what it's like to be in those real world situations and still having to remind yourself that you're a filmmaker and that you want to actually get film. Daniel has some great tips for those of you who are interested in working on the road. We get this question all the time. How do people make money on the road? How can I make money on the road? Well, the method that Daniel's going to describe to you coming up is a method that anyone can use, and it may help you on your next adventure. We're going to talk about border crossings and travel in Africa, even how to enter a village. My name is Daniel Rinz. I am a filmmaker and world traveler. Daniel, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. It's been a while since we talked. I mean, last time we talked, you'd finished sort of the, I think the first leg of your trip. I kind of think it was um, 2014, maybe late 2014 we talked last. I think we've even talked after that. Remember, Um, I was sitting in a restaurant with good (laughs) Wi-Fi, the best Wi-Fi in Cape Town, right? Uh, So we had a chat and then the power cut out. Right. (laughs) So that must have been 2016. Right, right, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's that's good, that was funny. Uh, Well, are you still traveling right now? Uh, Josephine and I, we've come back from our big trip this summer. Now you just mentioned Josephine, so you're not traveling alone. Tell us about Josephine. Well, I met Josephine in uh, 2010 in Asia. She was a backpacker back then. And uh, uh, we, uh, we actually knew each other before uh, through a mutual circle of friends. And uh, so when she planned to go to Asia, someone said, uh, look Daniel up, he's, uh, he's riding his motorcycle through that part of the world. So we hooked up and uh, we got to know each other and have been traveling ever since. You you said you're a filmmaker. That's what you're doing, isn't it? I mean, you're out traveling and filming to make your next film. Because you're for for those who don't know, the first film was somewhere else tomorrow, which um, you did very well from. Well, it's uh, I didn't know where it would go, but I wanted to get my message out there. I wanted to inspire other people. I felt like I was compelled to share what I experienced. But it's one best of fest in in new york and uh, also at another film festival in tokyo and it's it's been screened around the world on in multiple uh film festivals so that was very encouraging so we uh, we we documented our second trip and we're gonna make another movie is that why you travel now is, is it is it job related no no we travel because we we can't help it <laughs> we 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 need to it's like it's like a drug but um we work along the way to 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 keep to stay on the road uh uh first when i started in 2008 uh 
a buddy and I, we came out of university, so we had no savings. And we came up with the plan to work random jobs along the way. And we didn't know whether it would work, but it did. And now that Josephine and I are traveling, we're doing the same thing because I was making the movie. Uh, she was working at a job to support the both of us. And when we left for uh, New York, we had to pay uh, insurance, health insurance for two years for, for both of us or three years even. Then we had to ship the bikes. We had to pay for our flights over. So by the time we, we got to our starting point, we were pretty much, again, back at zero. Yeah, just to be clear, your, your first trip, you really started out with no money. That was the point when you said work along way. It's because you started out with no money, which is bold to say the least. Well, you know, we had a, fuel, a full tank of fuel and our moms, they were packing us some food, but that, you know, obviously you don't get that far, uh, on that. And, uh, very soon we had to, uh, we had to find, find a job. And the first thing we did, we worked in London, uh, for someone we already knew and he needed help. It was kind of the wrong direction. We wanted to go East and, and travel to Asia and then go down to Australia and then travel up the Americas and kind of that route. Um, but you know, it, it, throughout the last six years that we've been on the road, it's it's always been the case that we zigzagged across and just had a very tentative route and kept our ultimate goal uh, far on the horizon. We just, you know, you can't really plan uh, very precisely because you have to take the uh, the jobs as they come and wherever they are, right? Yeah. And when I said you did very well for the movie, I wasn't, uh, I didn't mean to imply that you've made tons of money because I'm sure that's not the case. Um, but the movie itself did very well is what I was referring to. But, but, well, let me ask you that, Daniel. I mean, what, what do you find the key is or has been to finding work on the road? Because that's really unique what you did. You left with no money and you made a success of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. I get this question a lot and I have, a, I have a, it's, a, it's really hard to answer it. I'll try it out, Jim. Uh, it's difficult because I, I can't give a recipe, you know, but uh, there, there's a few factors that help. Basically, one thing is we never turned anything down. Uh, we, if someone said, "Look, uh, if if do you want to uh, work in the restaurant and and wash dishes?" We said yes, and that led to getting to know the chef. And the chef said, "Can you mow my lawn?" And then we did that. And then a guy walked by the the front yard walking his dog and he said what are you doing and then uh, we talked to him and then he said I have a uh, um, newspaper agency do you can you send me some photos or write some articles and then it evolves from there basically being the traveler being the the exotic person in any environment uh, is is breaks the eyes and you get to talk to people and people feel uh, compassionate and try to help you and yeah, the, the key really is to, to take them up on, on any opportunity. This is a really, as you said, you get this question a lot. We hear this question all the time as well. People are wondering how they could go out and possibly do it and make it on the road. And a lot of people turn towards sponsorship. You know, they lean towards, oh, well, maybe I'll get some companies to sponsor me to ride around the world. Well, the bottom line is, in most cases, that's just 
not going to happen. It's not very practical. And if you do, you're probably going to end up getting a product or something. But the key is, is to find ways to actually make money elsewhere. Like, like, like you're saying, not pass anything up. I think that is, is a, a very important thing. Mm-hmm. And then networking. So each time you're talking with somebody, you're sort of telling them what your story is. Yeah. I mean, the bike, the, the loaded up bike is, uh, is what people see first and then they're curious and then you get to talk about what you do and why. And it's just natural. You don't even have to pitch it to them, right? Why do you travel? What do you tell them when they ask you, like, why are you doing this? I mean, why are you torturing yourself? Because (laughs) to go out with no money and have to do all these odd jobs, some people look at it as you're torturing yourself. Well, sometimes sometimes it feels like torture. Uh, uh, Josephine and I have, uh, you know, the last leg of the trip going up uh, the western coast of Africa Um, maybe it wasn't the smartest idea in the world to add a whole new continent to the end of a two-year trip already uh, and then and then make it Africa and then riding the west coast we were so exhausted on so many levels Um, the infrastructure is you know not what you used to and the culture is very different the climate is extreme the riding is tough. Uh, so sometimes it is torture, but we, on a regular basis, we are reminded of why we do it. And we do it because uh, from all the things that I've done in my life, traveling is is just a lifestyle that it's just one of the best things I know that I can do with my life. Is it sort of like what the average rider gets out of riding a motorcycle? That, you know, that, that great feeling you get when you ride down the road? Is that, that's sort of what you're talking about? That's a side effect. That's, that's just yeah, there. I'm not I talking mean, for the bike, though, in your case. But I'm saying, w- would that be the same sort of feeling that you get from travel that you get from riding a bike? I think so. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think I know what you're saying. I mean, riding a bike uh, immediately gives you a sense of freedom, right? I think... A motorcycle, I th- and, and why we chose to ride motorcycles, it's, it's so much fun. It is the most basic form of, uh, of traveling w- with, uh, with a motor, right? It's, it's, there's nothing on a motorcycle that, that you don't need in order to go forward, right? It's just two wheels and an engine, you know, and, and, that, and that, I don't know, it's just so much freedom. It's powerful, it accelerates, it's, you got the wind going through your jacket it's just nothing around you you feel the cold and the heat and you feel the smell you smell the smells i think it is that ties right into freedom i can kind of hear in your voice you know the way you describe motorcycling that you obviously clearly love riding a bike it's not just it's not just transportation for you is it no no but that's that's when it gets difficult that's what what i was talking about when i mentioned uh, central africa uh, oftentimes when you travel uh, you just make it from A to B because the traffic is dense. There's only one available route. Uh, there's a lot of potholes. Uh, there's uh, crazy drivers. It's dangerous. It's not very scenic. Uh, maybe it's even ugly. You drive through, uh, uh, you know, suburbs. Or I, I don't know. It's it, it's not pleasant to ride. But then the days that are great, you know, going through the mountains, you have fantastic views. They make up for all that. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about your route. Like when you started out in 2008, you sort of went through Europe and, and down through Asia. You went through Australia. That, that's about the coverage of that, right? I mean, it's fairly extensive, but I mean, I'm, I'm covering it quickly here. That's right, yeah. Right, so then that in two, 2014, you're starting out in, in New York and North America. You're going all the way up to Alaska, all the way down to, we make this sound so easy, all the way down to Ushuaia. Then, like you said, you choose to do Africa last. Uh, why was that? Is it, is it because, I mean, most people think of Africa as like, you know, the real deal. Is, was that the case? Hmm. I have to really uh, think carefully about how I portray it because it's too easy to get the wrong impression. Well, one thing is I had a huge, I still have, I still have a huge respect for, for Africa. Um, it is it is very different from from everything else, uh, and uh, at times, I mean, it is evolving. You know, I mean, I talked to Ted Simon, I talked to Sam Manicom, I talked to a lot of people who traveled that route or in in these regions, and uh, you get an idea of what it could be like, and it's it's improving. You know, I mean, nowadays. Uh, if you choose your route carefully, you can do it on a on a road bike. Uh, you know the Chinese build roads like crazy, so it's it's uh, that challenge. Certainly, I mean the riding aspect of it has really gotten easier, but it's still that um, Africa is uh, you know there's sometimes it's political problems and they come and go overnight. So when, when we started to plan our route, we had to get visas uh, up front. And then by the time we got there, uh, the political situation had completely changed and we had to adapt, you know. Uh, and and that, that is a big risk and it's, it makes it very, very uh, exciting, not always in a good way. But um, it, you really have to be on your feet. All your senses have to be attuned and you have to be experienced in order to stay out of trouble Um, and uh, I think I left Africa uh, to last because I figured you know uh, if I have all the experiences if I learn as I go along then this will help me uh, you know uh, travel through through the uh, I think most unpredictable continent. When you went through Africa you went down the west side did you think that was easiest route? Um, no, no. It, it, we were talking to uh, South Africans a lot, and, and, and most people travel the Eastern route. Mm-hmm. They call it the Coca-Cola route. Because, the Coca-Cola route. Yeah, I think, you know, if it, it's, it's more touristy, uh, you get yeah. more Coca-Cola that side. Basically, it's more uh, developed. I don't know why they call mm-hmm. it like that. That's my interpretation. Um, but we... Um, we traveled up the western route uh, because uh, we were looking at the eastern one, um, but at the moment it is a cul-de-sac, a dead end, right? So you travel all the way up to Egypt, and to your right there is uh, uh, you can't go through Syria. That, that's a big no-go, a big uh, war zone. They won't even let you travel into the Sinai uh, Peninsula. Um, there have been um, uh, su- suicide bombings and attacks that were planned and c- carried out uh, on motorcycles. So there's no motorcycle go- going that way, let alone a foreign one. 
and then you look to your left, there's Libya. That's a big no-go. I mean, uh, it's been a mess since uh, they uh, killed uh, Gaddafi. So so basically, you, you go to Egypt, and then you you have a big problem. There's no ferries going to either Turkey or Greece. So you really have to fly out your bike, and that is very, very expensive. Uh, Egypt has the most difficult borders in the world. I have traveled through Egypt uh, on my first trip coming from Libya and going out to Jordan, and that was before the Arab Spring. And uh, it took us a whole day to just cross the border. So flying out a bike from there, that, that'd be very, very costly and very, very difficult. So that was one of the reasons why we chose the Western route, because when you make it all the way to Morocco, then it's just a ferry uh, across the Strait of Gibraltar, and then you're in, in Spain and you're home. What caught you the most, uh, like caught you by surprise the most going up the west side of Africa? Uh, elephants behind our tents, for well, I mean, example. You, you had to know you're camping in elephant territory, no? Um, yes, we knew, but... But the reality of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, people told us the chances that you will see any, they're really slim. But it was the end of the dry season, so the water holes that still had water... Uh, there was only a few left, so the 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 whole population of elephants they really uh, kind of cornered. So, uh, and and where we where we stayed with our tents, that was one of the waterholes, and it just you know it's crazy because they're so huge, but they move. You can't hear them. They they really move uh, without any noise. You only hear them when they pull a huge uh, branch down from from a from a tree to to eat the leaves they have so much power in their um in their trunks it's it's incredible so you've got a a huge animal like that that doesn't make much noise when it walks around and here you're laying on the ground how vulnerable are you in a tent with an elephant um actually there were 12 of them so uh (laughs) uh but luckily they didn't come across our campsite during the night we it was like evening um, so we, we got some great photos, uh, <laughs> but it was scary like hell, I tell you. Uh, it's not, I, th- I think if you leave them alone and if you're not in their way, then, then it's kind of safe. The only problem was that we were on foot, you know, there's a lot of, uh, safaris. It wasn't Namibia. There's a lot of safaris going on and the elephants are used to, to vehicles, uh, with people in it that take photos, so they don't even care. But if there's someone on foot, that's that's like, uh, I don't know, it could be a predator. I don't know. It's That's very different. And we didn't know that at the time. So we were fake charged by an elephant at one point. It, Josephine and I were just, were just running, running with our cameras and hiding behind rocks. And, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> we survived. But stupidity, right? We didn't know. 
Um, well, you, you were told that you're, you know the chances are very very slim that you're going to see an elephant. <laughs> of course, sure, then you sure. then you see. I mean, it, I I was out on a trip before guiding a trip, and they asked me, "What was there chances of seeing cougars?" And I remember telling them, "Well, it's it's almost like winning the lottery." And then it was that day we had a cougar come into camp and try and attack us. It was <laughs> it was one really? of those, yeah, it was one of those just bizarre things. You know, later at the campsite where or the campfire we're sitting around, there's we got talking about UFOs, and I said, "Oh, your chance of seeing a UFO," and they're stopping. Me. Don't even say <laughs> it. Do not not say that. You know, <laughs> the reality is you can you can find yourself out there and and be that one off, be that one off that has the experience like you did. So what I'm picturing here is because you're a filmmaker, you all of a sudden have these elephants here. Are you grabbing cameras? Are you setting up your video camera, etc., trying to get good shots? There was no time for setting anything up, but I was carrying my camera and I was shooting all the time. Uh you know, from behind a tree or it's just sneaking up on them a little bit. Not too far. I mean, to be honest, Josephine was much more forward with them. She would get much more close to them. And I said, come on, don't don't go any closer. I mean, elephants are pretty cool. You know, when they feel that you annoy them, they will face your way and then they will, uh, they will give you signs. They will, uh, with their ears, they will wave. And then when they, what's the noise they make? What do you call it? The, the trumpet? Okay. Oh. Is that the, do you know? What, is, what, <laughs> what do you no call it? an expert. I'm, I don't know. I mean, right. it's some sort of call. Yeah, trumpeting, I guess they do, but let's just assume that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So when you do that, when they trumpet, then, you know, that's, that's really back off now. I mean, there's, you know, next, ti- next time you do something, uh, it won't be, it won't be nice. So there are signs and we, we did not ignore them, but uh, I don't know why. One of the elephants, um, uh, they, he just fake charged us. So he came running towards us, but not like uh, all the way. He just, uh, maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 meters. But by that time, we were like, he was only seeing the back of us. We were like, speedy Gonzalez. And, and a fake charge is really just a charge where they stop. <laughs> and then we, we yeah. tend to refer to it with grizzly bears as well. You tend to refer to that as a fake charge, but it's the real thing when it's running at you. But you said they give you signs. Did you get a book or you get some warnings in, in advance where you say, okay, these are the things you have to listen for and, and pay attention to? Maybe we should have. <laughs> but nah, it, it, I, mean, I can picture you huddled behind the log. No, no, no. The flapping ears is good. The flapping ears is good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. No, it's, you know, that's. We, uh, that's, that's not a little philosophy we have. Um, uh, we don't really like to uh, prepare for any place or region too much because then it takes the, you know, it raises expectations and then it's, it's very likely to kind of a little bit spoil your trip as well. So what we do is we would like to have the least amount of uh, prejudice or any knowledge. Well, knowledge, okay, uh, it, it's a double-sided sword. But we would like to just be there and experience a place. And what happens all the time is that you get to talk to people and people will tell you what's important for each corner of the world. So in Namibia, we were told, okay, look, there's elephants. When you camp out, do this. Don't do this. These are the signs. So that happens anywhere. Even when we rode through the Congo, right, We all we knew is, okay, civil war, uh, brutal uh, police checkpoints that you have to bribe. Um, and all these things, right? But when you get there and you, get, and you, you take the time to talk to them uh, or to anybody, really, you'll get a feel for what the situation is really like. I mean, if we were 
preparing our journeys, looking at the uh, government websites uh, and, and their recommendations and, and maybe other guidebooks and uh, newspaper articles, we wouldn't go anywhere. You know, you, you kind of have to go first and then ask what's, what's happening. I mean, Ted Simon says, go to a country when there's a war so you have it to yourself. I mean, I wouldn't go that far, <laughs> but he said that several times. The thing is, when Ted Simon went, I think in 1972 to 74, I think was was his first round-the-world trip, obviously there was no internet then, and it's a completely different experience, I'm sure. Like, I mean, I can even think of when I was younger, when you, when we did things, we, we wrote letters back and forth. And if you were inquiring for something to go somewhere, you you might contact the tourism board and, and get them to send you some maps, etc. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, everything's on the internet. It's so easy to get. And, and I mean, I like what you're saying. You don't over-prepare because... What's where's the discovery? I mean, let's face it. There's roads everywhere, and that's what you're following because you're on a motorcycle. And if you sort of over prepare it, you kind of kill the magic, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, that's why you go. You want to learn something about the world. But if you already know everything, then it's really hard to have a new impression. You kind of, you know, your 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 mind is made up. I mean, it doesn't go like this all the time. But I I would like to be as free as possible with my mind and, and keep. The experiences that I have very personal, you know, the more I know uh, what could happen, the more likely I invite these, uh, you know, experiences to happen. To refer to Africa as sort of like just a singular thing. I mean, we often do this. It almost sounds like a country. And I think a lot of people mistake it for that. And we're talking of a, 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 a massive continent here. Um, but in general, though, you, you mentioned the roads were, were good. I mean, were you talking about Africa? Or the, were the roads fine? Was that not a problem for you? You know, it depends on where you go. Uh, there is basically there's one road on the eastern route and there's one road on the western route that pretty much, I mean, almost exclusively takes you through easily or easy enough. But as soon as you want to see something special, any anything, I mean, even if you want to turn into a wildlife uh, park or something, anything, anything, I mean, then it gets difficult, you know, immediately. You know, you turn off the main route, and it, it's, it's uh, full of road. Um, so it doesn't really say anything when you say there's a tarmac road going through Africa. You can ride through it, but you won't experience Africa. You won't see anything except uh, the main road, where the trucks are, where all the people travel, people that, that just make it through to get to their destination. It's not Africa, you know what I mean? So what was your mode of travel or your modem operandi, I guess? Really, do you get to a place where you're going to stay and then veer off to really experience? That's, yeah, that's what we did. Um, a couple of times we took alternative routes, uh, especially uh, I remember this uh, experience in Gabun. There's the, the main route, so if, if any trans... Uh, national or international truck driver would take a completely different route to, to make it easier on on his cargo. But we wanted to go through Gabun. And Gabun is uh, it's, it's a very interesting place. Uh, it, uh, the GB, GPD or GDP, what is it? GDP, right? GDP. Uh, GDP is like 10 times higher than the neighboring country, uh, Rep- Republic of Congo. Um, but you don't feel it 
you cross the border and it looks just the same. Uh, people sit in front of wooden houses in the middle of the jungle, uh, just along a red muddy road. Um, there's no power lines, there's no telephone, there's no cell phone reception. It's just them, their village, the jungle and the river where they wash their clothes, they get their drinking water. That's, that's, they're, just, they're just there, right? Um, but when you travel to the capital, that's where all the money is. I think uh, they have uh, natural resources, uh, which only goes to the top 5% of the people in Gabon and, and the rest of them. You know, it's, it's proper Africa. So, but we wanted to see this. And so we, we, we took those, those, those routes um, and we experienced this red muddy road against the green canopy of, of the jungle for days and days. It was very difficult riding, but it was really, really uh, inspirational. How do you connect with the locals when you pull in? I mean, these, you know, the people obviously have no money compared to what you do. I mean, even though I know you're going through with, with virtually no money by our standards, but um, do you make a connection with them? Can you do that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're, the Africans, I mean, fantastic people, uh, really open, uh, really open, really easy to talk to them. I mean, the language barrier is there for sure. Uh, a lot of countries on the Eastern route, the one we didn't go, uh, are English-speaking countries, which is not a plus. Uh, we went the Western route, and a lot of a lot of countries uh, have French as their uh, main language, which made it difficult because my French is really bad, and Josephine's French is uh, medium. So, so that makes it difficult. But you you still can connect to them because uh, the Africans are really inventive when it comes to communication. They have so many different. Uh, dialects, local dialects and, and languages. So they, they need to find a way to communicate to each other as well. And I would imagine that their French isn't that great either, especially if you travel through the jungle. But you just rock up at the chief's uh, house, which is usually in the middle of the village. And there's a flag usually to show that this is the chief. And you introduce yourself. And um, 100% of the time, the chief uh, accepted us right away. And when that happens, you're safe in that village. Uh, people come, uh, come up to you, talk to you, want to find out what you're doing. And, and you can easily camp there. It's very, very cool. It's very nice to connect with, with these kind of places. How did you figure that out, that you, you go to the, see the chief first? Was, was that a natural sort of discovery? Um, we heard this a couple of times, but before we did, uh, it, it came... It came like, uh, I don't know, it, for us it was like common sense. We, we, when we stop at places, um, usually the kids are the ones that come up to you first. Uh, they're curious, you know, they've never seen something like this, so they, they touch everything, they touch the bike and burn their fingers on the exhaust pipe maybe if you don't <laughs> stop them. But, uh, you know, they come up and they're really curious. And then uh, it's usually followed by an adult uh coming up and chasing the kids away um, and then the adult will not linger much longer and pass and then you sit there on your own and uh, when you do this differently when you do go to the chief first and like, introduce yourself um, it's it's a whole different game it's it's very different uh, people linger people come by bring food uh, share stories uh, you know ask for help or you give them 
some small gifts, and it's it's a it's a fun thing to do. So we kind of we kind of uh, figured it out a bit, but then we were confirmed by others uh, who had the same experience. I know you've just done a show recently where you've met all kinds of people and had them come up, and, and I've done shows, and I know what it's like. You, you sort of have to work the show. I mean, it, you enjoy doing it, but you have to work it, and at the end, it can be sort of emotionally draining where you, you sort of sit back. It's not necessarily physically difficult most times, but it, it can be emotionally draining because it feels like you've given out all the time. Do you find that when you're doing this? Because this whole meet and greet and get to know ritual that you're doing each night do you find it emotionally sort of draining after a while or, is, or does it do maybe the opposite where it's invigorating? I have to confess something. I like confessions. Uh, <laughs> how many people are going to hear this? <laughs> <laughs> I am not really, I mean, I'm, I'm not seeking the limelight. I, it really, really takes it out of me. I love meeting the people, meeting the other travelers, meeting the fans, the people who are interested in motorcycling and in traveling and sharing my experiences and helping them uh, go out and explore themselves. But uh, it is a very, very unnatural environment for me. Uh, at the expo last weekend, I talked to hundreds of people. I mean, business people, possible sponsors, uh, fans, people who had come up and said, I've seen this movie three times before, you know. All, all this and and the way I am, I want to give each one of them the attention they deserve. But there's so much going on at, at these events. There's so many people wanting a little bit of your attention that I, I feel like I can't do justice to any of them. So that drains me. It's really, really tough. Well, I'm, what I was really looking for is a correlation between, you know, that show that you just did, that you just described, that, that you find difficult, and going into a remote African village where you have to get to know the chief, where you have to get to know the people who come up, where you deal with the kids. And a lot of it, I imagine, is sort of the same thing over and over again. Mm, I'm not sure if I understand you correctly, but I think there's, uh, as far as correlation goes, I think rocking up at a uh, African village is, is a very, very different deal. In terms of, you know, time, you know, I think, I think that's the main difference, time, because no one has watches or clocks in Africa. No one has a business card. No one has much of an agenda. So when you show up, everything they do, they just drop and then they hang out and, and they'll stay as long or you stay as long as you find it interesting or, or comfortable. But in, um, at an event like like that uh, here at the AIM Expo, it's it's uh, every everyone has has an agenda. Every everyone has only a few minutes time, and you have to cram all the information in that few minutes that you have with each other, and and uh, you have to be it's full on. I don't know. Is that what what are you trying to? Uh, yeah, I'm just saying because I know that it shows, you know, for when I've done shows before, I, I have the same feeling where, you know, you want to connect with people and you, and you want to do what you're there for, but it's emotionally draining. And I'm wondering if there's a, a correlation between that and coming into village after village, night after night, the, day after day that you're on the road and sort of doing the same ritual because you're doing that, that same thing in this small village. You're getting to know the chief and then you're getting to know the other people and you're telling your story over and over again, uh, the same story you're telling over and over again, basically. Mm -hmm. And does that wear on you? Does that sort of, do you, do you sometimes pull into a village and think, ah, man, here we go again? I've never even uh, looked at that uh, until now, but it's a very interesting thought. 
my immediate my immediate thought is um, th- the one thing that I found draining going through Africa or traveling. I mean, I think it wasn't Africa. It was just the uh, the duration, the, the the length, and the intensity of this three year trip that made it come up. Basically, when we came home, uh, we kept our apartment. We sublet it. So we came home and we dropped our stuff, closed the door, and we sat down. And that was the first time I realized it, that the reason or one of the reasons why we were exhausted like this is because we had no privacy for three years. And uh, we were guests or we were camping. We had to be you know, our our senses had to be, you know, attuned. We had to be on our feet. And and if you do this for, I mean, I, it's, we certainly weren't used to it, uh, but it, it drained us. That that made us really exhausted. And once we sat down on our couch and, and we could, uh, you know, a figure of speech, but take the phone off the hook kind of, and, and you just have you and and your walls around you, and when you put down anything on a table, it'll be there the next day because no one else shares this space with you. So that that little comfort zone, this your own space, we didn't know, but we 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 needed it. We we missed it. We hadn't haven't had it in three years. That is a weird weird feeling. So at that point, you appreciate it more because you didn't have it. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, uh, one winter living there, I'm sure a lot of uh, travel plans and ideas will come up quickly. But <laughs> having been on the road for that long, we that's what we needed. That's what we needed. So what was really tough about Africa? I, I mean, and I don't like asking those like, like, you know, I'm not asking for your your worst scenario. But what did you find tough about it? Um. As I said before, Jim, I think uh, one of the reasons why we found it tough is because we already been on the road for two years at at the point where we decided to to do it. So we weren't like the super freshest kind of, yeah, let's do it. Let's go on an expedition, right? Uh, and then it took a whole year. And uh, I, can't, I can't really tell you like one or two specific things that make it tough. What I can say is that it is the amount of things that are a little bit more difficult than you're used to, that then accumulate to this whole thing being a roller coaster. You know, everything you want to do is a little bit more difficult. And if you plan to do more than one thing a day, then you're very, very ambitious. So I can give you an example uh, as for what really tested us. so coming up from Namibia, we were trying to travel through Angola. And it's one of the harder visas to get. I mean, all the visas are hard to get in Africa. We paid, I think, uh, $2,000, uh, $1,000 per person for all the visas we, we had to get in mm-hmm. order to get through. And, and it's not even made easy to get them. You have to wait and you have to send passports back and forth and you have to... Ah, it's, it's a mess. Anyway, so... The Angola visa was like 500 euros for the both of us. Uh, we couldn't afford it at the time, so we decided to apply for a five-day transit visa. Um, so it was uh, looking at Google Maps or any any map that was available. It was around about 2,500 to 3,000 uh, kilometers through the country, so that seemed 
manageable. Um, so we, we opted for that. So this, we wrote in and the first day we, heard, we connected with people and uh, got a feel for the place and they told us, don't go that route. The route we were planning, the, the most straightforward and the shortest route through the country. They say it goes through the mountains, there's mudslides, uh, there is uh, weather problems. It's very unpredictable. Go uh, along the coast. Is that because of the time of year or is, or is that just because of things that were happening at the time? I think it was, uh, it's in general, it's, it's more difficult to go the mountain route, but it, it was also the time of the year in addition to that. So we went along the coast, but that made the route a lot farther. We had to ride a lot longer. So we were on our bikes between 12 to one day, 15 hours on the mm-hmm. bike uh, riding. Um, and we also learned that when you overstay and you want to exit the country, they make you pay 100 euros per person per day, each Ooh. day you, you overstay. So, you know, needless to say, we were trying to make it in time, uh, riding hard. Uh, 500 miles a day is easy enough to do in Europe or North America, but 500 miles or 500 kilometers a day you know, it can be a very different story on the African roads. So it was like halfway in Angola. I think we were just going around the capital, Luanda, that Josephine told me over the intercom that her, um, uh, what is it, the battery light was flickering the, the, that indicated whether the bike would charge or not. You know, at that point, it was very, very hot and I didn't want to stop for anything. I didn't want to stop for taking photographs or anything. I just needed to, the airflow to you know, like a, like a junkie, I need my drug, I need, you know, I need to go. Um, eventually, uh, her bike just uh, stopped with a big bang. And uh, she told me and over the intercom and I stopped. It was very frustrating. It was very hot. And uh, but uh, luckily, she was she kept the cool head. I don't know, for some reason at that point, I don't know, I was, I was not very uh, cool about it. Uh, I just wanted to get over with it, with the whole, with a lot of riding, you know. I like to ride, but if it gets if it gets too much, right? Every mm-hmm. day, sixteen hours, and the stress hours. of trying to make your your deadline. Yeah, yeah. So I went back into the city, and uh, I found a the best battery I could find. Well, you know, first I need to explain. I didn't want to get into fixing the bike because that would have opened up a whole new can of worms. I don't know how long it would take or what was wrong exactly. I just knew it wouldn't charge. So so I went into town. I bought a battery. The best I could find was a Chinese $5 cheap, lousy product. And then I drove by a junkyard and got two big copper cables with, with eyelets on either end. And I rode back to, to Josephine, where she was stranded. And I exchanged the batteries. I put the new one in, uh, connected it to the bike, and then I put her empty battery in my tank bag, and I connected it to my onboard battery with the cables, so I can charge it while I was riding. Um, so she was then riding right behind me with her lights off, no indicators, um, and we're trying to make up for the lost time. Uh, on the way to the border, uh, and Congo was next. One of the places we weren't super excited about going through. We heard a lot of uh, not so nice stuff, you know, civil wars. I think at one time it was the rape capital in the world. And it's just, it's just 
people fight for survival every day. Um, but we, that's what was next. So we were approaching it on a broken bike. So we made it in time. I mean, I swapped the batteries a couple of times, but we made it. And then we crossed the border. And uh, initially, we were thinking about riding through the jungle and then uh, riding into the other Congo. There's two Congos. There's the not-so-democratic Republic of Congo in the south, the former Zaire, and then there's the Republic of Congo in the north. And the Republic in the north is uh, a lot more civilized and much safer from what we've heard. So we wanted to cut through the big Congo very quickly and through the jungle would have meant uh, tough riding, but the border crossing would be uh, much easier. But we couldn't do this because Josephine's bike was limping and we didn't want to get stranded in the jungle and, you know, and some, you know it's just, just too risky. So we rode to Kinshasa, which is the capital of uh, the uh, southern Congo. And uh, I mean, the border crossing between the two, how, how much time do you have? That's a whole new story. I mean, I can talk for an hour just about the border crossing. What, what do you mean? Like, because the, the border crossing is so difficult, you mean? There's no, there's no crossing really going on. The two countries don't like each other politically. Uh, so there's basically no commerce uh, traveling back and forth. There's no trading. There's, there's a few people that go back and forth. Uh, I don't know. It's very difficult to go to do, to do this. And there's the Congo as, uh, as the divider. Basically, Kinshasa and Brazzaville are the two capitals that are closest to each other in the world. And it's uh, three kilometers wide at that point. So you have to find a boat that takes you across, but you have to, to deal with the uh, customs and the uh, police on either side. But they're not aware of any regular kind of uh, border crossing in any way. So it's very difficult. When we rocked up, at, we couldn't even find it. We couldn't even find the checkpoint where you, where you even try. Uh, and then we eventually got there. It was a big iron gate and about 20, 25 ex uh, custom workers sitting outside hoping to be able to make a little bit of money for the few people that come through and work for them as a fixer um, that is that was that took a long long day I mean with with uh, finding a boat and and paying a lot of money and uh, man when we when we uh, reached the actual waterfront, I had, I had, had my passport uh, in so many hands. I got so many stamps. I was watching custom workers uh, play video games on their uh, official computers, and I did, they ignored me until uh, they. I bribed them. I didn't. I didn't bribe them. I just waited it out. But it was a very stressful long day. And by the time we actually got to the waterfront where the boat was, we realized the boat was like uh, ten meters below us. There was no way we could drop the bikes down to that and. And our fixer obviously played us there. He wanted to make some extra money. And, and then we faced 50 harbor workers, you know, the, the, the really desperate kind uh, with really run down and, and uh, trying to, to manhandle our bikes onto the boat. And it was just so stressful because, you know, I mean, we've taken our bikes so far. And if we dropped them in the Congo, then... 
then we that would have been the end of the bike and the trip uh, and the bike. Uh, but anyways, you have to pay those people that are manhandling your bikes down. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, and when you say time. boat, what, what kind of boat are you talking about? Oh, uh, you know, just a little. Uh, uh, I don't know, ten meter long little uh, boat. I mean, it looked not so bad. It had a, a motor on the on the side. It was not too bad. Uh, even the the captain, even the only crew, he had a white shirt and a captain hat. So that was confirming. Uh, but you know, <laughs> it, it wasn't it wasn't the boat. It was just uh, getting the bikes on it and and the whole bureaucracy about it. And you know, you play it right. Uh, you, you you know they they need to make some money off you so they can survive until the next idiot traveler comes through uh, two months later or something. You know. <laughs> so you know you're being taken for a ride, but you've just got to sort of mitigate the damage. Yeah, you have to stay cool. You have to keep talking to them and uh, don't get emotional about it. You know, you you know you're being played, but you can't show them. So anyway, so we made it all the way over to Brazzaville and we found out that if we had gone the jungle route, which would have meant an easier border, we would very likely been killed because the elections were going on in the in the, the northern Congo. They had the elections going on. And like always when there's elections going on, there's an opposition and a fight. And at that time when we were coming through, they were hiding in that part of the jungle that we would have come through. And it would have been fantastic for them to snatch us and uh, and use us as leverage for whatever they wanted. So in hindsight, the bike breaking down probably uh, saved our lives. And does that make you think about the overplanning thing that we've talked about? Maybe it was underplanned or is it just one of those things that happened? I mean, because that's something you don't come back from, obviously. I, I, I'm not sure about whether you can under or over plan these kind of things because, uh, you know, things like that change overnight. If we had done intensive research of that region, and we did a little bit, I don't think there's any information about this. You know, you just have to, it's kind of touch and go. You go in and then you talk to people and you hear things and the slower you go, the, the more you hear and the safer you can travel. But if you go too slow, then, you know, the wrong kind of people become aware of you and then they catch up with you. So it's, it's a balance. <laughs> that, that's interesting. You know, so there's a, a speed that you feel comfortable going at. And it, so that's, that's the way the cards fell. Um, it could have ended up somehow completely different. Do, do you think, like, would you describe the route as, as sort of a safe route? Like, would you describe it as, yeah, you know, if, if you want to travel, you can do it? The route we took? Yeah, I'm, so, I'm talking Africa in particular, the, the, west, uh, the west route that you did, let's say, roughly. Well, I'd like to say yes. And, uh, and there's probably more people going through and make it through safely than you would imagine. But just to give you an idea, uh, we've talked to Duncan at, uh, what is it called, Overland? Oh, I forgot. There's a, there's a cool guy. He's uh, stationed in South Africa, and he's been helping overlanders to get their vehicles uh, shipped out or shipped in for their journey for about 10 years or longer even, and he's very knowledgeable. So he was one of the guys we talked to. Another person we talked to was Alice in Togo. She's also very famous. She's been uh, a hub for overlanders since 
I don't know how long, maybe 40, 50 years or so. And we talked to these people that have been there for, for ages, and they all said that overlanding has dropped to zero uh, over, over the last years. And we haven't met a lot of travelers. I, ca I can count it on, on one hand, the travelers we met Are you along talking the way. West Africa? Yes. Like you're saying for the whole it, area, like for, for the whole continent? Pretty much. Wow. I mean, the eastern route is a little different, and South, South Africa is, is uh, very popular. Namibia is very popular. Um, uh, Botswana is very popular. There's a lot of travelers, but as soon as you go into Angola and then all the way up uh, to uh, Congo, Gabon, Cameroon, Nigeria, Togo, Benin, and then uh, Ghana, Mali, Senegal, that's when, when you're, you're on your own, basically. When you're doing this and you're, you're going through the borders and everything, being that you are a filmmaker and that's always in the back of your mind, are you trying to film all of this, all the problems you have and the difficulties that you go through? I'm trying. It's very difficult. Uh, I'm trying to get... I'm really trying to capture as much as I can with my camera, but it's... It, especially in that region, it was difficult because... Even I, as an, I don't know, I would say experienced traveler, you know, even I, I, I had a hard time just just getting through, you know, taking care of, uh, of business, basically, you know, getting, getting your bike through. It was it's so much to do and so much to consider uh, planning. And, uh, and also, I mean, if you cover 100 miles in Africa, it takes you much longer. Uh, and Africa is huge, and we we uh, experienced this firsthand. It's it's big. Um, so, of course, I I I kept my camera on me all the time, and we even had a helmet camera, uh, which was uh, um, you can it's an intercom and a camera, so we we could actually shoot footage uh, from on the road when we were riding. So that helped a lot, and. But you know, if mm -hmm. if you look at a at a proper movie with a nice story, the 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 action cam shots that is maybe one one and a half percent overall, right? So you want to give the people a a good feel for for scenery, for people, for culture, for things that are happening. And uh, when you're completely stunned by what's happening then it's very difficult to think, oh, hang on, uh, let me switch the camera on, you know. Hey, you know, it's just everyday stuff. When you walk through the streets of, uh, where was it? I think it was uh, Togo or Benin. You just walk f from a restaurant to your hotel and then you hear these incredible uh, voices and singing and you walk in to a backyard of a stranger and, and uh, you see a voodoo ceremony going on and you're surprised to find that they're that they're welcoming you to join them and sit there and then, and then the people start to do things that you've never seen before like they they go into a trance and then wailing their arms and running around like they're out of their minds uh, and I don't know it's just it's sometimes it sometimes Africa has the ability to completely flatten you and then you forget you're a filmmaker or you forget you're a person you just you just what's happening so, but I do my best, obviously, because, uh, you know, I want to share as much as I can. Um, and um, I'm looking forward to, to getting into all the footage and making something sensible out of it. 
I can't imagine having to deal with that. I mean, I often think of that when you look at, you know, mountain climbing videos, things like that, which is sort of similar in the way that it's um, stressful. And so having to deal with your personal stress of you getting through and be the camera person as well. I mean, I just can't imagine the stress that must add to a trip. I think we often look at videos and think, oh, that's really neat. You know, you got some footage there. But I think the reality of it is a lot of this footage can be extremely difficult to capture, especially when it comes to something like border crossings. Oh, yeah. Oh, very difficult. And in a lot of uh, situations here, you can't even do it at all because it would risk you going to jail. Um, uh, we, we heard about this only after we traveled through Nigeria. But, you know, when we went through checkpoints, we just kept the camera on our helmets rolling. Uh, but that would have been enough, you know, just taking a photograph of an authority. That would have been enough to get us in jail. Mm. Um, but then again, you know, watching a film uh, that is done by a traveler, uh, like the first hand view, I don't know, is that a word? The first the, the kind of the extension, the camera is the extension of the traveler's arm that is very different than watching a production where there is a director a cameraman and uh, the protagonist where you know one goes uh, do this now and then do this and oh we didn't get this in the right angle let's wait till sunset so we get better lighting that's that's not what i'm after i'm i'm after the raw thing and make that look beautiful and what do you do now? So you, you've done the trip. You were a long time on the road there. I guess this you're going to work on your next movie, right? That's that's the plan? That's the plan. I mean, the reason why I'm here in the U.S. right now is because uh, our Indiegogo campaign is live right now. So we're basically pitching to people, buy the film now so we can use the funds to make it happen, to, to uh, produce it, to get through post-production, to get music, to get motion graphics, to get narrators to help with the voices and uh you know i mean i'll do probably i'll do 95 percent of the work um but there's certain things i can't i can't pay uh, up front so that worked really well when we came out with our first film we also were on indiegogo and a lot of um, uh, travelers or people who like movies they helped make it and we want to do the same thing um and, and uh, the people who jump onto this now, basically pre-purchase the movie now, they get a lot of cool stuff. First of all, they will get the movie to watch months before anyone else. Um, and we'll put all the people who help us make this uh, in the credits, in the end of the, of the movie. So that's probably something cool to see when you sit in the cinema somewhere and you watch a movie and then the credits roll and you see your own name. That's probably cool. Um, so... And also, I mean, we, we want to stay independent. We want to make the movie the way we experience the trip. We want to give it a real, authentic, and close-to-reality uh, feel to it. And uh, it's very likely that this can happen if you get a big producer in it or someone who, like one person that gives a lump of money then because he wants to have a say. And that's what we want to prevent. So that's why we we go to individuals uh, that go in Indiegogo and say, yeah, I'm going to give five bucks, or I'm going to give 20 bucks or 100 bucks, whatever. They, they feel like giving and then they get cool perks for it, like DVDs, calendars, books, and, uh, other cool stuff. And that way everyone is happy, I think. That's... 
That's the reason. You spent three years on the road in this last stretch. You've taken you're taking all this footage that you've gathered, and you're going to produce the you know the movie that you're you're talking about. Indiegogo that's that's a platform for fundraising, right? Where you can you put your project up there, and people who want, as you described, there's there's perks available. But that's a platform that people can go and log on to and and add some money to the the project, so, so to speak, to get your film at the end. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to do it. And um, like you say, I mean, you know, there's things that, that are very expensive with the films. I imagine that without that sort of thing, I guess you could still do a film, though, couldn't you? If you if you didn't go the high end, I guess, but you'd just end up with sort of, I guess, a YouTube rather than a feature film. Exactly. I mean, I, I actually, I couldn't, I wouldn't want to do this. I have, I've been a filmmaker for over 10 years. I've worked for Volkswagen, size watches. I had... Intercontinental Hotel, like some pre- prestigious uh, companies that hired me to to make their brand look cool, or some image videos and or instructional videos, safety videos, all kinds of things. And and I have a certain level of of uh, I don't know how to put it. I just don't want to m- make a movie that that I'm not happy with. I want I want it polished. I want it to inspire people. I want people to learn something from it. I ca- I can't, you know. There's a lot of there's a lot of videos on the web uh, where you're watching half an hour of GoPro on your helmet kind of thing. Um, it's it's cool to watch this for a while, but I I want to tell. I need to tell a story, and and that is work. It's a lot of work. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Jim. And that was filmmaker Daniel Rince. You can find out more about Daniel and what he does at his website, www.open-explorers.com. That link will be in our show notes, as well as the link to his Indiegogo site if you're interested in looking at helping him get this new film going. Drop by our website and look at the show notes. I'm going to take a quick minute here and talk about a couple of sponsors that help make this episode possible for you this week. And one is PSSOR, which is Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. And uh, that's where you'll find Brett Tax, who you hear here on this show, uh, or at least uh, different shows that we do all with our rider skills. Brett does at PSSOR what he does best, what you hear him do here, training riders like you and me to handle our large adventure bikes off-road. And um, if you haven't dropped by their website, I encourage you to do that. It's www.psor.com. They've got, uh, well, I mean, the season's done for 2017, but you've got to get in there and get 2018 because, as you can imagine, with a company like this, they're busy. They book up early. They've got 2018 dates up now for their ADV training expedition slash tours. And um, what that is, is Brett's told me about it before, that you, you actually ride some of the, the Washington backcountry discovery route and you go out with trainers, w- with professionals, and you do a real adventure. And what you do is you learn on that adventure. So instead of just having a problem and, and trying to get your buddies to maybe give you a push or mess around with your own bike, you actually turn that into or they turn it into a learning situation where you learn while you're having an adventure. And apparently this is really popular. And I think it's a great way to learn because you're learning in real world environment. Drop by their website, PSSOR.com. Get your 2008 date set. And um, also, if you're looking for uh, adventure bike rentals, talk to them about that as well. And of course, when you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. 
And the other company is IMS Products, www.imsproducts.com. IMS makes a complete line of foot pegs for us adventure motorcyclists. And I'll give you an idea of the, the quality. I got the opportunity to look at someone else's foot pegs the other day, and they bought them from another company. And, and that's fine. But if you want to compare quality, I mean, you can just see they saved a little money, but they didn't get near the peg that IMS is putting out, the pegs that I'm riding with right now that I absolutely love. I know I can depend on them. And of course, a foot peg, the last thing you want to do is have that fail. But on top of that, they're high quality. They keep my foot in place. They give me a good, stable platform and they improve my control on the bike. And if you aren't running wider pegs and you don't believe that, well, you have to try the wider pegs to really find out what it can do for your motorcycle. I mean, these things with IMS, they're made of uh, 17.4 stainless steel, cast certified materials. I mean, it's all top notch material, but bottom line is design is everything because I mean, you can have top notch material, you can have laser cutting, but unless you've got a great design, it's not going to help much. The IMS foot pegs, I know from experience, I'm riding with them now, work really, really well. www.imsproducts.com. And do me a favor, send them a note, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Most riders will tell you that Africa is the real deal. You got to be prepared. You have to know what you're doing. Getting your bike into and out of Africa, dealing with your carnets, government. Well, having someone on the inside can be key to a smooth transition for an African adventure. And Duncan Johnson of African Overlanders may just be the guy for you. He helps people get their motorcycles and 4x4s into and out of Africa every day. It's what he does for a living. I caught up with Duncan in his office in Cape Town, South Africa. Okay, my name is uh, Duncan Johnson. I'm from the UK. I moved to South Africa six years ago and I own and run a company called African Overlanders. Duncan, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Nice to be here. Well, let's tell us a little bit more about African Overlanders. Uh, what we try to provide is a, a support for the beginning, the middle, or the end of uh, a person's trip in their own vehicle through Africa. Uh, so we either ship cars in, we store cars, we do mechanical work, or we ship the cars back home or onto their next destinations. Uh, our big, our big areas of shipping are to Northern Europe and South America. Uh, what we try to do with the motorcycle is put them in containers with cars and that way the motorcycle doesn't need to be boxed and uh, that saves the customer a great deal of money. Duncan, how do you find yourself in Africa doing this? I started riding motorbikes through parts of the world many years ago um, and slowly it became a, a bigger and bigger thing for me. Um, and my last trip, which was eight years ago now, was from London to Cape Town. And I found a niche in the market and uh, I moved my family over here. And we started, we've been running now for six and a half years. What's it like living there compared to England? Warmer. 
<laughs> in a word, <laughs> that's it. Uh, it's it's the, the lifestyle's better. The 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 the, the way we live here um, compared to my IT job in London. Um, I, I'm much freer here. I can spend a, a week moving a car from Cape Town to Botswana, you know, or I could be, you know, barbecuing with people in the campsite. It, it could be anything, really. It's, uh, it's, it's far more varied. And, of course, it's warmer, <laughs> so you can do it for longer. <laughs> well, and in six years, you've made quite a splash. I mean, you're doing a lot of this now. This is a full-time gig for you. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, we've we've become quite well known, and uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 taken off, taken off big time. If somebody was coming to Africa, they want to ship their bike there. They would be contacting you to help get their bike into the country, or even ship it from, like, let's say they're coming from North America. Yeah, there's a, a process that you've got to go through. Um, you you need to know, you need to have some documentation. Um, and Africa is a little bit special in this way, that uh, we use something called a carnet de passage that is a temporary import-export document. So to take your example, if we were to ship somebody, say, from Houston or Florida or Buenos Aires even, over to us, the first thing they need to sort out is how they get the bike into this country. And unfortunately... To come in here, you've got two options, the carnet de passage or a temporary import. But when coming in by sea, the temporary import requires you to lay down a deposit. The carnet de passage means you lay down the deposit in your home country. And uh, I feel that's a lot safer than leaving your money, which can be quite a bit of money, with a, with a foreign government. Um, we have had people that have had their money go missing for an awful long time. So the Carlo de Passage is normally the way to go. When you're in Africa, moving from country to country, you can do it like a lot of the rest of the world on temporary imports. But the problem is getting the bike in here in the first place. Mm. That goes if you're coming from Morocco, the same thing. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yes and no. There's a lot of people coming down the west coast of Africa now, more so than in the past, because of the problems on the east side with Syria and Egypt and many other little micro problems going on. Uh, people can come down the whole west coast with a uh, with a temporary import permit, and they can also get into South Africa with a temporary import permit. And I can also export them on the temporary import permit. It's more about getting in is where the carne, by, by sea or by air, is when you will need the carne de passage. Yeah, I interviewed somebody who, who did the length of Africa without a carne. Uh, they just sort of went into each country and, and dealt with it in, in each country's instance. But does that mean you're, you're giving the, the government of whatever country you're coming into, you're giving them your deposit and then you're picking that up on the way out and then giving it to the next country? Absolutely not. No, not at all. Um, temporary imports normally only would work for three or six months and it's it's done on your own uh, recognizance. So they are saying to you, you can have this tip, but you must export your bike within a certain amount of time. Um, 
there's sometimes a fee for it, um, admittedly, but not you don't you're not laying a deposit down. It's not the bike's worth a thousand dollars, so you must lay down five hundred to make sure that you export it. Yeah, Africa has sort of a reputation as being the real deal as far as uh, motorcycle overlanders goes. I, I mean, I think a lot of people, for that matter, in, in travel. Um, is it as difficult as one might think? Not at all. No, no. It's it's as, it's as easy as, as you want to make it and it's as difficult as you want to make it. You can now basically get from Cape Town to uh, to Egypt to, to on tarmac. You know, and border crossings are easy, um, sometimes 25, 30 minutes per border crossing. They're so simple. Oh, wow. West Africa is a little bit harder, I must admit. It's more off-road. There's more difficulty language, more more French spoken than, than, than English, which is on the East Coast. But, you know, traveling Africa is is really what you want to make of it nowadays. So if you want the, the sand and the off-road, you, you go look for it. Um, but if you want to just cycle along the tarmac and see the see the sights and see the views, then that's that's per- perfectly plausible as well. So if, you, if you're going to learn a language, you want to put something into one language, French would be the language to go for. Yeah, after English. Yeah, yeah. So do you have a ballpark figure of what it costs to get a bike into Africa? No, shipping costs vary. Um, so it depends on where you're coming from. Yeah. North America is, is quite expensive because there's no direct trading routes with South Africa. So there's not many ships. There's actually only one ship a month that goes direct. So that means you have to transship which means you have to pay for two ships, et cetera, et cetera. Um, most people come in from South America and uh, that way they come in by container and it's, 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 it's a little bit cheaper. Okay, so if, if I contacted you from North America and I say, you know, I'm, I'm coming from the United States, I'm in New York, wherever the case is, um, what would you recommend as the best method to get to Africa? Well, if you've got time, you can always ship it down here. It would work out a bit cheaper. But if you haven't got time, I would fly it. And the reason is every day that you're waiting for your bike to turn up, you're having to pay for hotels, food, etc., etc. So that would far outweigh any saving that you would make by shipping it, which would take 40 or 50 days. Okay, and so flying it may be the best bet for most people. When you get there and and all said and done, you're sitting on your motorcycle, at what point would a rental make more sense? I mean, do you you have a number of days, you know, or like after this many days, you're better off to import your own bike, that sort of thing? Well, for long-term travel, it's not particularly long, actually. Um, I do. I work in everything in UK pounds, and a basic BMW bike is about a hundred pound a day in Cape Town. So it's not many days before you're up to a few thousand pounds. You know what I mean? And shipping in would have been would have been cheaper. Mm. And then you got your own bike and all the advantages that go with that. And your own equipment, and it's set up the way you want it to be set up. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
we do have a little side company that we have called uh, discoverafrica4x4.com, which does a 4 by 4 buyback that for people who want to be on the road for a long time, minimum of three months, we sell them a car and then we buy it back for a set amount at the end of the trip. And that works out a lot, lot cheaper. You're getting three months travel for what you'd get two weeks travel. So we have to worry about our carne. Um, what else do you have to worry about when you're about to ship your bike? There's several ways to ship it. The box, obviously, that it goes in, you need it to be as uh, as sturdy as possible. Um, you need to know how to get your bike out of your previous country as well. But the agent that's setting the shipping up for you should be able to tell you that. Um, and then you need to decide how you want to do it. Do you want to... So to greet the bike when it arrives or do you want to put it into storage for a, for a, a few weeks and know that it's here when you arrive? And then after that, you once your car data passage is stamped, you're free to go and you can start, start traveling. Um, and at that point, you're, you, yeah, you just start crossing borders. You, you start the adventure really. Where do you come in in this scene? If I was sending my motorcycle to Africa, would you go pick it up for me and you store? Is that part of what you do? That's exactly what we do, yeah. So you, you've got the security of knowing with us that your bike is going to be here three weeks before you are. And so, you know, ships bypass ports sometimes because it's too rough or too much wind to dock. So we just bring in that safety period of a few weeks that we hold your bike for you. It goes undercover. And then you, we pick you up at the airport, bring you to your bike, sit down, have a trap, have a cup of coffee, and then uh, you're ready to go. Yeah, that's a huge deal because having somebody local in the country that you're going into, but also you, you talked about the expense. Otherwise, you're going to be at that end, sitting in Africa, paying for your hotel, paying for your accommodations while you wait for that ship to come in or the container to be emptied. So this way, they just leave it to you um, and then meet you. Or you're actually, you're picking them up at the airport. I mean, that's pretty darn convenient. Yeah, yeah, we hope so. We, we put it together purely with overlanders in mind that literally when you hand your bike or your car over, to, to an agent in Canada, US, wherever it is, you've given away your home and your kitchen and uh, you're, <laughs> you're pretty naked, to yeah. be honest. <laughs> Have you heard anything or do you know anything about insurance for shipping it over? I've always wondered, what, what happens if something happens to that container ship, that container? I mean, stuff goes missing. Yeah, containers fall off ships. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you hear this. Never, never happened to me so far. Um, yes, you can get insurance for, for, for bikes and cars in containers, but it must be kept in mind that the the insurance you will get is only total loss insurance. You won't get damage insurance. And the reason is, is because your bike or car is probably already damaged if it's been doing uh, overland trips already and you need the car and the bike inspected before the, the insurance can come into play and this is pretty expensive to be honest with you so it's total loss so if the container went over the side of the ship you would get some money back um, at that point in South Africa it's impossible for me to take out insurance for people um, the corruption laws over here prohibit it. So 
I have to when you if you want to take out insurance for your car or your motorbike in a container, you have to do it yourself. I set you up with an agent, and the agent then uh, takes over and says, "We're going to charge you this much for this," um, to stop people sending stuff overvalued, shall we say? And at the end of the trip, so when when I'm done my trip, I can come back and do the same thing with you. I, I basically drop my bike and equipment with you, and then I head off. Basically, yeah. Yeah, you tr- give me a carnet, you give me a letter to export it, and you give me the bike. A few weeks later, when I have a container for you, I put your bike on a trailer, I'll drive it to the port, I, uh, I strap and lash the bike into the container, and off it goes. And a few weeks later, it arrives wherever it's going to go. Anything else that someone should know if they're considering doing this? Yeah, there's a few things that people frequently ask. Um, insurance on the road is a is a big thing. Um, there's not not no insurance in a lot of countries in Africa, so it's a choice of yours whether you have it. And some people do get it, and some people get third party from their own countries, but it's quite difficult to buy insurance within Africa. Um, if if insurance is required in the country they will sell it at the border um but not all countries require south africa for example you can drive uninsured here um but obviously if you have an accident you have to resolve the problem yourself once bringing bringing certain types of bikes into africa you need to think about the type of bike you're going to have and what kind of rider you are. That's another big question I get asked a lot. You know, are the big bikes the best, especially if you're going off-road, the energy required to pick them up when you fall off, or should you be going for something slightly smaller? Also remember, in Namibia and South Africa are very uh, westernised. The rest of Africa isn't. So... Um, once you're out of South Africa and Namibia, it, you go into real Africa, uh, which isn't doesn't have the BMW and the KTM dealers. And so if you have a problem outside of those two countries, you really need to know your bike well so that you can fix it yourself. Um, there are places around. There's Jungle Junction in Nairobi and uh, Chris there has a campsite and he's a BMW mechanic, but there's not many places where uh, where you can find the spare parts and the, the the equipment required to fix your bike like you can in the in the Western world. So a good old carbureted bike, simple, best setup for you for Africa. I I prefer them personally, you know, but we have all all types coming through, but I do prefer something I know that the petrol is going to drop into a a carburetor and then it's going to go into a motor and the motor is going to turn and hopefully turn my rear wheel. And if something goes wrong, I can see where the problem is. Okay. Uh, Anything else? Um, No, just, just precautions. Just, you know, People don't are not as well trained on the roads in Africa, so always be more cautious than you would be in your home country. Just have good good health cover in case anything happens, which of course incorporates being able to ride a motorbike. Otherwise, 
you fall over, break your arm, and suddenly they say, you're riding a motorbike, we're not covering you, which a lot of insurance policies do. Um, it's all it's all just thinking logically about about a trip like this, but it's no more dangerous. It just needs to be handled in a slightly different way to what you would do when riding across the US or, or Europe, really. Um, it, you know, you're crossing multiple borders, but you don't have the infrastructure in place to help you like you would in, in the Western world, which, uh, as, as, as we said earlier on, is, is a massive part of the adventure. You know, when it, when it comes to timing, I mean, you hear people refer to, you know, Africa moves in its own time. Um, do you have to sort of take that into consideration when you're planning a trip there? Do you need to be very mindful of the fact that things can take um, ridiculously long periods of time to get done as opposed to in the Western world? Yes, yes, you do. But if it's all about organisation again. Um, it, it, border crossings can become a nightmare. Borders can go on strike. Uh, and you're sat at a border and suddenly you can't get through because they've decided that they want something and they're not going to work until they get it. Um, so then... But it, you then just have to think, I'll, I'll ride around to the next border post, you know, or or find another way around the problem. But it's not as bad as as all that. It's not a daily occurrence. Um, but yes, you, you need to build in spare time. You can't expect to say, well, I did 5,000 miles across America last summer in, in 10 days. I can do the same in Africa. That would be That would be unwise, to say the least. Duncan, thanks very much. No problem, Jim. Thank you very much. And that was Duncan Johnson from AfricanOverlanders.com. And of course, that link will also be in our show notes. before we wrap things up I just wanted to say that um, we're still looking for support for our patron page which is uh, a thing where you can go on and you can give any amount of money to help support the show for once a month so if you like what we're doing you want to help support things we could certainly use it www.adventureriderradio.com click on the support button all the information's there and anything $10 or more will get you a sticker sent back at you and we've got a bunch of other things on there so check it out if you'd like we'd really appreciate it thanks I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Well, if you'd like to check out any of our episodes for this show or our other show, ARR Raw, simply drop by our website, 
www.adventureriderradio.com and have a look at what we've got. We've got all kinds of things there. Oh, by the way, I'm going to mention that we have a search uh, button there. Not a search button, but a search field. If you look on the, uh, at this point anyway, on the column on the right-hand side, uh, there's a search field there. And quite often people will ask, you know, how they can find out about a certain show they remember or they remember something about it or maybe have we covered something go to that search uh, field there click in whatever you want and search and see what you get uh, we've covered a lot of topics on this show over this period of time and there's a lot of great information from some really super people we've had on this show well it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can my name is jim martin thanks for listening see you next week This is Teach McNeil here, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio, the voice of moto travel. (laughs) 